sound? Great. You guys hear me? I think it's time. Might start just a little bit early. Um, good morning, everyone. Pastor Dave and Emma are away. Uh, having, I think they're in Florida, hopefully avoiding some of the weather and having a good, refreshing time together. So uh, he asked if I could fill in for him. So we're going to do a little bit of a fast forward in church history today and do a little bit on the Reformation. We're going to get into, more, into several sessions on this later on um, in our series. Um, but let me just start with some scripture. Um, really, I think what you see in the Reformation is the Word of God um, being active and making its and, 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 and taking on um, impact in the church and in people's lives in a way that it hadn't before, kind of a recovery of the Word of God. So with that in mind, I'm just going to read several key scriptures for us to keep in mind. Then I'm going to pray, and we'll dive right in, okay? Romans 1, 16 through 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in him. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And then finally, I'll read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. It's wonderful, isn't it, to bask in those truths. We could just end right now. I think we'd probably be doing okay. This is the only perfect part of the lesson right there. Um, everything else is going to be substandard to that. Um, with these things in mind, and as we look at some key figures of the Reformation, let me pray for us. Father God, we praise you for 
the power of your word, which always accomplishes what you intend for it. We thank you for the supremacy of Christ, who is the word made flesh for us, uh, who is to be glorified in all things. I pray for us that we would have clarity through our session today in knowing the gospel, confidence in its power, and boldness in communicating it to those who are far from you. Thank you for the many examples that have been set for us in history and help us to understand them through the filter of your word and in the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Good. It's really interesting. Um, like a lot of um, American evangelicals, I, I did not grow up learning much about church history. And so um, I'm a relatively uh, a relative newbie to it, maybe in the last 15 years or so. Um, and what I find is, to God be the glory. You have some very flawed characters promoting a very perfect God. And so keep that in mind as we study, because I'm not going to sugarcoat anything about these guys. There were some very, very major flaws. But God's word is powerful and effective. Amen? It's powerful and effective in us as flawed human beings, right? So um, as we go through this, I'm going to just emphasize there are the five solas of the Reformation. You might have heard that before, the five solas. Um, it's uh, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and sola deo gloria. Those are all Latin. I'll give you the... The, um, the quick cliffs notes of that, right? Uh, sola gratia, by grace alone. Those verses that we just read really emphasize that. Sola fide, by faith alone, right? Uh, we have reliance in Christ and no one or nothing else, not ourselves, not any institution. Solus Christus, right? We see all those in hymns, in Christ, in Ephesians. He is the center of it all. As it says in Romans 11, 36, from, for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then sola scriptura. Uh, Jesus as the word of God affirmed the written word of God as sufficient. Um, Jesus quoted in Matthew 4, 4 from the Old Testament, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I hope that as believers, you, you, you feel that every day. We can't go that long without getting hungry. Uh, and I pray by God's grace, we don't go that long without the word of God, without getting hungry and desiring it. It is our life, the scriptures say, right? And so we come to it with that posture. And then solely Deo Gloria, right? To his great, to, his, to the praise of him alone. And we see things like that. No one should boast. Um, God says in the Old Testament, Isaiah, my glory I will not give to another. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5, says, Why, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? And this challenges us to be less self-centered, right, and more centered on him. Let's be honest, we're all kind of committed to our own glory to some extent, and God would have us repent of that and focus on his glory alone. From him, through him. To him are all things. There's nothing deficient in him, although there is much deficient in us. I'd like to say a few things about institutions and, and people. Um, so a um, little bit of interaction here. What, what would you say to the following objections? Here's a first statement. The Roman Catholic Church is corrupt, but aren't many Protestant churches and denominations also corrupt? I think we need to find a way to answer that. Right? Second one is, isn't the church full of hypocrites, and why should we take Christianity seriously? 
This is the first thing that I noticed when I really started to study church history is, honestly, it's a mess. I think I alluded to that, right? It's very messy, but God's purposes are accomplished through all of that. We see this even in the Bible, don't we? I think of like Jacob and Esau and everybody trying to manipulate the situation to the outcome that they wanted. What happened? God's purpose was fulfilled in the midst of all of that. And I hope that when we look at this, you will see that and, again, give Glory to God. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Right? He's the one doing it. Um, we see things like in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul wrote to, uh, to Timothy, but in case I am delayed, this is 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. These are challenging truths for us because when we think about our church, when we think about churches in general, God said that his church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, and it is the pillar and support of the truth. This is hard to believe sometimes, is it not, with flawed human beings? I think a couple of things that will help us to, to process that is understanding the difference between the visible and the invisible church. Anyone heard those terms before? So the, the visible church is what you see, institutions and professing believers, some of whom are actual believers, but not all of whom, right? Jesus talked about the wheat and the tares growing up together looking like believers, and sometimes we're not going to find out even until the end, although I think these last few years have revealed some things uh, about who's true and who's not. I will say that. Um, but the, the invisible church is all believers across all time, right? And that isn't always obvious. There are pockets of believers that we don't even know about in countries that are less well-known, that are equally part, and to me that's very exciting. We are part of something that's eternal, that Christ will build across his all-time geography, right, um, and ethnicities. It's, it's incredible what God has done. Um, so much more I could say about that. But one of the things I would say is that um, the obvious failability or fallibility of man draws our attention to the perfection of Christ. Um, John Piper wrote a book on, um, on key figures in church history, and he describes them this way, as faithful, flawed, and fruitful. I think that's a really, really good description, and hopefully that describes us. One of the things I think it's important to think about is that we, are, we don't want to define ourselves by other people or uh, institutions per se, but by Christ. Uh, Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians 3. I think this is an important word for us today. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered. But God was causing the growth. So then, and hear this, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. 
Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Why am I sharing this with you as we go into some figures of the Reformation? I think it's because we don't want to think too highly of them. We don't want to idolize them, right? Um, and I think there's a tendency to do that. Um, and so we want to be very, very careful to make sure that the glory is going to Christ. So the focus, God is the focus, and a church is true to the extent that it, not that it defines the truth, but that it is defined by God's truth, right? That's, that's a very real difference between, for example, Roman Catholicism and everything else in Christianity. Roman Catholicism, that authority structure says that we, we define the truth. No, God defines the truth. The church is defined by the truth. It doesn't define the truth. Martin Luther said this, and I love this quote. He said, see how much he, that is God, has been able to accomplish through me, though I did no more than pray and preach. The word did it all. And so that's our focus today. With that in mind, let's look at some key figures. And we're going to go pretty fast today. Um, I'm going to make these slides available. Um, there's a lot more detail in these slides than I will cover today, but I'll make them available to you. So we're going to talk about the seed, the flower, and the fruit of the Reformation. Where did it begin? How was it sustained? And what, what impact do we see um, in, in the world today? Even for those who aren't Christians, the Reformation had an incredible impact on the history of the world in 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 plain literacy, if nothing else, right? Because you had words available in the common vernacular that people could read for themselves and learn and be empowered. Hugely important. So um, from uh, a book called Church History in Plain Language, I'll go right here. Two figures, these are the seeds. It says, two brave souls, John Wycliffe, an Englishman, and John Huss, a Czech, dared to suggest that the Christian church was something other than a visible organization on earth headed by the Pope. That was radical, and that could get you killed, and it did, particularly for Mr. Huss, and we'll get into that. So, John Wycliffe, uh, known as uh, the English zealot or morning star of the Reformation. Uh, he, uh, he was a professor, a master of Balliol College in Oxford. Uh, some of the key historical issues around his time was earthly dominion or lordship, right? How was the right to rule transferred from God to earthly rulers? So what was the place of the church? What was the church place of the state? And his writings will be very influential, even to the founding of the American colonies and in Western civilization in terms of sorting that out. Pretty messy, right? Um, he, uh, he focused on abuses of power within the church and dual papacy. There was a time where there were two popes. It's pretty messy, right? Um, in 1377, the Pope condemned Wycliffe's teaching but took no direct action against him. Um, and then you see things like papal schism, right? You have two popes at one time. Um, and then the Archbishop Bishop of Canterbury condemned Wycliffe's doctrines as heretical. And he was silenced from teaching. I think one of the things you'll see here is that cancel culture is nothing new, right? And, these, and some of these folks were, let's just say, a little bit more than canceled, a little bit more than their Twitter accounts, you know, shut down. They were shut down physically, right? He was known for his commitment to the authority of Scripture. He produced the first Bible in English, um, and it was Old English, and it was from the Latin, so it's not direct from the original languages, but it was the first available Bible um, in English. Um, two key works that he wrote uh, on divine dominion and on civil dominion, again, this whole idea 
what is the legitimate power of the church? What is the legitimate power of the state? It's become a huge issue. And for a while, and as we'll see, those were one and the same. Those were one and the same. Um, again, he, uh, he translated the Bible uh, from Latin to English. And that was punishable by death by the Roman Catholic Church. But they didn't, uh, they didn't catch up with him to actually do that. So he, he died in, in his parish uh, following two strokes in 1384. So his contributions to the church, just to summarize, the idea of the visible versus the invisible church, uh, the priesthood of all believers, uh, that is, every, every believer could have direct access to God without an intermediary. These were radical thoughts. We take these things for granted today. It was radical at the time. Um, Bible being translated to English, and he uh, commissioned some local ministering priests called Lollards. Lollards was not a complimentary term. It, it was to indicate they were very unsophisticated in their language, right, compared to the elites. But they were out bringing the word of God to the common folk. A couple quotes. I won't go through all of these. Uh, Christ is, I'm going to look this way because I can't quite see it up there. Christ is truth. The Pope is the principle of falsehood. Christ lived in poverty. The Pope labors for worldly magnificence. Christ refused temporal dominion. The Pope seeks it. Right? Again, focusing on Christ as head of the church. And then the authority of Scripture. The New Testament is full of full authority and open to the understanding of simple men as to the points that be most needful to salvation. He that keepeth meekness and charity hath the true understanding and perfection of all holy writ. For Christ did not write his laws on tables nor on skins of animals, but on the hearts of men. Again, we begin to see the egalitarian, if you will, nature that, that the scriptures and access to God were open to all people, not just to some people. Key scriptures that emphasize this, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again, those verses that talk about Christ having first place in everything and being the head of the church. You can see at this time what, what radical ideas these were. This was kind of the original speaking truth to power, if you will, um, and uh, very risky. Let's move on to, to John Huss. Uh, John Huss was, a, was a, a Czech, and the word Huss means goose, and so we call him the goose who was cooked. Have you ever heard? That's kind of an old school expression. Anyone ever heard that? His goose was cooked, right? You're, you're, you're done, right? You're, you're in danger if that happened. It comes from John Huss and literally happened. Um, he was a professor at the University of Prague, and he was a pastor at Bethlehem Chapel. Um, so a couple of key historic events. I won't go through all of these, but um, you see an, a kingly alliance between countries. That was kind of a thing back then. Um, it allowed for the expansion of academic and religious influence between, um, between England and, and uh, Czechoslovakia, what was well, then Bohemia. This is interesting. Bethlehem Chapel was founded, and on the walls were paintings contrasting the behavior of popes with Jesus. Right? And you saw some of that contrast in the last quote. What a contrast. What a contrast it was. I think of when Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last first. I've come to be your, your servant, right? Um, and when he talks about how worldly leaders lead, he said, it shall not be this way among you. You will serve, not to be served. And that was the complete opposite of what people were seeing in their spiritual leaders. Right? Um, 
he had a, uh, he, his initial preaching was welcomed well. He was, he was um, exiled. And uh, there was a strong connection between, between him and Wycliffe. Wycliffe's writings influenced him very much. But Wycliffe's works were banned around this time. Uh, the Council of Constance, I think last, was it last week or the week before Pastor Dave went through some of the uh, ecumenical councils? Um, after the Seventh Council, things really went off the rails. And so this is number 16. Um, it was called to end the papal schism, but it ended up with a third pope. So that didn't quite accomplish its purpose. Um, it examined the teachings of Wycliffe and Huss, and both were condemned. Um, John Huss was condemned as a heretic and burned at the stake. Um, he, was, he was kept under house arrest for a while, and it took, took them a while to do it. And that's why that, that they kind of in the news was, has the goose been cooked yet? And, it took a, and finally, finally, he was. He was condemned. Um, he was known for his book on the church, which was heavily influenced by Wycliffe, um, and his letters from prison. Uh, and he was, uh, died, um, he was burned at the stake at a place called Devil's Place. Contributions to the church, proclaiming Christ as the foundation of the church and sole dispenser of salvation. A couple quotes. I have said that I would not for a chapel, full, for a, I'm going to look this way, for a chapel full of gold recede from the truth. I know that the truth stands and is mighty forever and abides eternally with whom there is no respect of persons. O most holy Christ, draw me, weak as I am, offer thyself, for if thou dost not draw us, we cannot follow thee. Strengthen my spirit that it may be willing if the flesh is weak, let thy grace precede us. Come between and follow, for without thee we cannot go. For thy sake to cruel death, give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love, that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. So like many of our forebears, he was expecting to die for his faith and prepared for that. Key scriptures, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11. And then we see many verses like in Ephesians 2, right? That we are a spiritual building with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. We are a dwelling of God by the Spirit, not simply a human institution with a Christian veneer or a Christian name. Very, very important. Now, I do want to say a few things, a few words about divisions and schisms. And that is one of the big, the, the big criticisms of the Reformation. That isn't this divisive? Isn't this sinful to do this? Um, if you look at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, I pray that they would be one. As, as Jesus would say, I pray that my Father will be one just as I am one with the Father. Right? So, so what's going on here, right? I'll read these, right? I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So what was the, about to happen in church history through the Reformation was a great divide, one that actually remains to this day. So we ask ourselves, was it necessary? And was it faithful to Christ's prayer? Uh, on the face of it, it would seem that it wasn't. 
want to just lay out a little bit of, of some terminology that I think will help us here. The difference between divisions and schisms. And these actually come from two key verses in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions, the Greek word is schisma, among you. Right? So the, the clear instruction against that, that a schism, that kind of division is sinful. Interestingly, Paul would say later on in the book, in his instructions that include how we celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions, there's that same word again, schisma, exist among you, and in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Heresis, the Greek word, that's, I think the word heresy is derivative from that. So I think what we're seeing here is that division's bad, right? Factions, good. What does that mean? Factions here, uh, it says, so there should not be divisions, but there should be factions to preserve the truth. We need to identify who is true, who is faithful, and who is false. I think we've learned, right, through our, our journey through Second Peter, as Pastor Bobby has led us, false teaching was there from the very beginning and needs to be identified and fought against. And this is an example of that. And it was really interesting because that false teaching dominated professing Christianity. That's one of the things that's really interesting. If you study the concept of false teaching in the New Testament, it's sobering to realize that the majority, and I think it's even true today, um, it might be a bold statement to say this, but the majority of what professes itself as Christian is false teaching. And so we need to be very careful and know our Bibles. Right? And that's what our, our, our lesson here is all about. There's a lot I could say about that, but I encourage you, if you haven't heard the Second Peter series, uh, go back. It, it, it spells that out in great detail for us. Always need to be on guard. Always in our Bibles, right, so that we can know false from true. I'll deviate a little bit here from my notes. I, I love what Jesus says in John 10. He talks about he is the good shepherd. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. And he says something really interesting. A stranger they simply will not follow because they do not know the voice of strangers. So, um, brothers and sisters, we need to know the voice of our shepherd and his word really well so that we can distinguish truth from error. That's, that's our job. Okay. So there's a list here, um, divisions and schisms. So I, I would say that while the Reformation was a big one, it wasn't the first one. There were, there were many, many division, divisions and schisms, most uh, notably when the, when the um, Eastern Church broke off from the Western Church, the, what we now know as, as the Greek or Byzantine uh, Church. So um, again, not new, not new. Okay, so that was kind of the seed of the Reformation. I want to focus in on three characters who I would say were the flower of the Reformation, really known more classically as Reformation figures. And the first two you would probably expect. Um, I would not be doing my job today if I didn't mention a Luther and Calvin. William Tyndale you might be a little less familiar with. But, uh, yeah, exciting, exciting, exciting story about him. Um, I'll tell you more about him in just a minute. So, Martin Luther. Uh, known as the swan who was not silent. And there's an interesting connection here, historical connection between him and Huss. Some of you might know about this. John Huss said this, you may roast the goose, 
but 100 years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. And that swan is often regarded as Martin Luther. So exactly 102 years later, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg. I think what you see here is not to exalt these men, but that the word of God is unstoppable throughout history. And, and I hope that gives you hope uh, through the dark times, even that we're living in, in the times that are getting uh, darker and darker. I take great hope in seeing what God did through these events. Pope Leo X said of Luther, a wild boar has invaded my vineyard. What's wrong with that quote? Whose vineyard is it? <laughs> right? It's not the Pope's. As we've established, it's Christ's. It's Christ's. And so you see something very revealing there. Uh, Martin Luther was German. Uh, he was a Roman Catholic priest and then a pastor. Um, historical events around this time, uh, the uh, printing press, while it had, wasn't invented, it was perfected. Uh, it was actually invented several uh, centuries earlier, uh, I think in Asia, as I understand it. Um, and so the, the Gutenberg Bible was printed, and so for the first time, people could begin to see in, 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 in mass what the Bible said for themselves. So they could hear something in the Roman Catholic Mass, go back to their Bibles and say, wait a minute, right? And so you can see why the Roman Catholic Church did not want this to happen, and then it was illegal to have the Bible translated into a language that you could understand. Think about that. Not that we see this today. There are not powerful people that want us to be ignorant, are there? No, it's been happening for a long, long time. Um, in, on July 2nd, 1505, while returning home from law school, he was caught in a lightning storm and hurled to the ground by lightning. And he cried out, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. And so he did, much to his father's dismay. Um, interesting um, history about him with his relationship with his father. Um, in 1507, he was ordained into the Roman Catholic priesthood. Um, in 1511, he, he did a pilgrimage to Rome and was very disillusioned by the things that he saw there. Um, and he was converted uh, to true faith in 1515, primarily through Romans 117, understanding that the righteous shall live by faith. In Octo October 31, 1517, so October 31st isn't Halloween, it's Reformation Day, just so we're really clear on that, okay? So if you want to dress up as Martin Luther, I guess that's probably okay, right? Uh, he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg, outlining the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and boldly proclaiming the building of the church was its people and not its architecture. Very important. As you can expect, he was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. The Diet of Worms, which is an assembly of the Holy Roman Empire, um, that happened. And that's his famous statement that he's, he's uh, known to have said, here I stand. I'll give you that quote in a little bit. Uh, he was banished and given safe passage to Wartburg Castle under the threat of death. Um, in 1522, he returned um, and engaged in a preaching ministry. And at 42, he married a former Catholic nun, Katerina von Bora. And they would have six children, so... We have six children, so I kind of like that connection. That and our love for the word probably are the only things that, that, that uh, we have in common, but I do love that. I do love that. So known again for the 95 Theses, bold opposition, uh, and it really put a target on its head. It's really amazing that he wasn't killed. 
They tried to find him. They tried to get him, but God protected him. Um, his statement, here I stand, uh, was in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church's demand to recant his teachings. He would not do it. Um, he translated the Bible from the original languages into German, which had a huge impact on the German language in the same way that Tyndale's Bible had an impact on the English language. We'll get to Tyndale in a little bit. Uh, he wrote a book called Bondage of the Will, a very influential work. Some of you have read that. Uh, did commentaries on many books of the Bible. Um, and his home was interesting. Uh, he referred to the home as a school for character. And table talk was his teachings around the table at home. And that was a big part of his home rhythm. There's a, uh, Ligonier has a magazine called Table Talk Magazine. Some of you have seen that, which is based on this. Um, I can't sugarcoat it. He was known for anti-Semitism toward the end of his life. Um, while he was a defender of the Jewish people earlier in his life, um, his attitude turned with his disappointment in their rejection of Christ. Just a few words about this. Anti-Semitism was a thing in Germany for a long time, as you can imagine. Um, and he had written um, a book called Against the Jews, and, or a pamphlet called Against the Jews and Their Atrocities, which Hitler used to justify the Holocaust. When it came out, people didn't believe that Luther had actually written it because Luther was so revered by the German people. But when it was proven that he did, and he did, um, this, was, this gave kind of cover for the Holocaust, which is a terrible thing. Um, you know, one biographer said that one wishes that the latter years of Luther's life had never been. And so, um, can't sugarcoat that for you. But again, this is where it's, it's great not to be Catholic, right? Because our faith and our trust is not in people, but it's in the Word of God. And I, th and I think God has designed this, men like this, with some pretty significant flaws to not glorify them too much, but turn our attention to Christ. That's how I would process that and encourage you to do that as well. He died at age 62 in Wittenberg, Germany. Contributions to the church, right? The recovery of the doctrine of salvation by faith alone and not of works. Um, again, the priesthood of the individual believer, that each believer had direct access to God through Christ. Trust in the word of God and then focus on the family as the locus of discipleship. I'm not going to go through all these quotes, but this is a big one here. Who knows whether it is so? Uh, in his pilgrimage to Rome, he climbed these steps at St. John's Lateran Church. Um, each step, you're supposed to say a certain thing and gain an indulgent, indulgence um, or a, or a uh, pass, a, a reduced time in purgatory or salvation for a family member. He got to the top of the steps, did all he was supposed to do, and he, he cried out, who knows whether it is so. Very, very disillusioned. Um, and you can read that quote there, um, Romans 1.17. That's really his testimony, understanding what it meant that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God terrified him because he thought he had to manufacture it himself. And that is a terrifying prospect. But when he realized that the righteous shall live by faith, and righteousness is imputed to us through faith in Christ. It was then, it's at, it says the, the doors of heaven, paradise opened to him. Beautiful thing. Um, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without it. For the sake of scripture, we should reject pope and councils. Other quotes here. I won't read them all. You can see why he had a target on his head. And of course, key verses that fueled Martin Luther. We read it earlier, right? The righteous shall live 
by faith. That is how God's righteousness is revealed. And then Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. This is a good word for all believers in all generations. Right? What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? They love the approval of men rather than, than the approval of God. So we need to be very, very clear about this. Jesus said, if, if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. This idea, and I, you know, I've, been, I've been seeing some things, interestingly. Um, I'm not on Facebook a lot, uh, but there's, uh, there's some things out there about uh, um, social justice and societal change and kind of indicate that, well, if we just do the right things, people will love us. What kind of Christianity is that? People who are seeking God, people whom God is drawing will, but the world will not. And so we need to end this idea of if, if we just tweaked a few things, the world will love us. Yeah, that tweaking is abandoning the word of God. Then the, then the world will love you. Let's not do that. Okay. And uh, salvation by grace through faith. Right. Obviously, uh, faith alone. Faith alone and not by works. Okay. We're going to pick up the pace just a little bit. John Calvin. Um, I've referred to him as champion of the sovereign word. He was French. Uh, he was um, raised in French-speaking Geneva, Swi um, Switzerland, um, and he was a professor and a pastor. It's interesting how God drew some men from being in academia, kind of, in a sense, in an ivory tower, removed from reality in one sense. I'm not trying to dis, dis any of you who are in academia, but made them into pastors to say, hey, will these ideas that I'm studying really work with real people? in their daily lives. It's an interesting pattern. In 1533, Calvin experiences a sudden conversion and flees Paris. Um, with some reluctance on his part, uh, he was an academic and he was an introvert. That's not his reputation. It's not his reputation. Uh, he was appointed as professor of sacred scriptures by the Geneva City Councils. Again, you, you don't see a separation of church and state like we have today. So it's a, it's a little bit more complex. Um, in 1536, he published his first edition of the Institutes of a Christian Religion, establishing him as the most prominent leader of the Protestant cause. He would go through many revisions. If you see the, the original version of Calvin's Institutes, it's, you know, uh, I don't know, five, 600 pages. And the expanded one, the last one is much bigger than that. And so it continued to expand and grow. In 1538, he was banished from Geneva over a controversy regarding the power to excommunicate. Again, this, this issue of church or state, how do they interact? Who's the, who's the, who's the final authority? Um, Calvin spent the next three years in Strasbourg, France, as a pastor to French refugees. And during this time, he married a widow with two children. Her name was Idolette. In 1541, he returned to Geneva, famous story of uh, expository preaching. He went up to the pulpit, and he picked right up where he left off, as if he had never left just committed to walking through the scriptures. Um, in the 1540s, Geneva was established as the International Center of Reformed Christianity. His wife died in 1549, and this is the controversy that you often hear about the criticism of, um, of Calvin with Michael Servetus, who was a uh, physician, a Spanish physician convicted of heresy for denying the Trinity. Again, back in these days, church and state were not separate as we know them today. So you could be convicted of a crime 
by believing or teaching heresy, and Michael Servetus was. Um, he was burned at the stake in Geneva. Calvin did support uh, the conviction as consistent with the civil laws of Geneva at that time. That was the law, although he did ab um, advocate for a less severe form of death. So we can't sugarcoat that, and that's when you hear people talk about Calvin, um, or if you say you're a Calvinist, you believe in the doctrine of grace, you, you, you know, you might hear about this. So it happened. Again, doesn't diminish the truth of what he taught, right? because the truth did not originate with him. It originated with God's word. So he's known for the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, he's known for ministerial training. Uh, Scottish reformer John Knox called it the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on earth since the days of the apostles. As you may know, if you know anything about John Knox, he had to leave Scotland, fled for his life, and he and, um, and um, Calvin crossed paths, and he was in that school. Um, Calvin is, is almost synonymous with Reformed Christianity. I think you could say he even coined that term. We talked about the controversy um, with Michael Servetus, and then his commentaries are many, uh, many commentaries on much of the Old and New Testaments. And you can get those online for free, and um, very, very very good stuff. I, having, having, been, having worked through the um, uh, Calvin's Institutes for many years now, it's, it's very um, dense reading. You don't want to go fast. Um, and for me, it's the finest writing that I've ever read outside of the scriptures. It's not scripture. It's loaded with scripture, but it's, um, I commend it to you um, if you haven't taken a look at it. So he died um, at age 55 uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, probably from overwork. He was known for just an incredible work ethic. If you ever hear uh, the phrase the Protestant work ethic, a lot of it comes from Calvin. So, contributions to the church, recovery of the, doct the doctrines of God's sovereignty, predestination and election, uh, posthumously for Calvinism. Um, when people get into debates about Calvinism, I know this was true for me before I really learned what it was. They just didn't understand what it was. I'm not sure it's the best term, I prefer the doctrines of grace, but just for some background in terms of where it came from, it's um, Calvin didn't come up with this system, right? It's it, um, it's it's in response to the doctrines of Jacobus Arminius, who studied in Geneva under Beza, who was Calvin's successor. Um, the five points of Calvinism, as they're as they're called, were defined at the Synod of Dort in 1619 in response to the five article articles of the Arminian. So that's just a little bit of background. And reading, reading the, uh, the articles of the Remonstrance, reading the Council of Dort, um, the Synod of Dort, very edifying if you haven't read those. Um, and, of course, his passion uh, was for the glory of God. Um, separation of church and state, we've talked about that. Um, there was a recognition that was growing that both church and state were God-given but separate institutions designed by God for different purposes. Um, and he's known for defining the term Reformed Christianity. A couple quotes here. God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true godliness, I was immediately inflamed with an intense desire to make progress. Being by nature a bit antisocial and shy, I always loved retirement and peace. But God has so whirled me around by various events that he has never let me rest anywhere. But in spite of my natural inclination, has thrust me into the limelight and made me get into the game, as they say. 
I love how God does that. We see this in Scripture, right? It's not those who exalt themselves generally who God uses. It's not, it's not, God doesn't use those people at all, right? He pushes people who would not really want to do that um, into a position of discomfort and trust in him, and they have great, great impact. Okay, I'm going to move along here. I love this one. God both directs men's counsels and excites their wills and regulates their efforts as he pleases. This idea that Calvinism teaches that we're robots with, with our choice has nothing to do with it is wrong. I would say the best way to describe it is that God doesn't manipulate our wills per se. He changes the heart and the will follows. God's work is much deeper, much more beautiful than um, than some sort of robotic uh, will manipulation. God works in the heart. Yeah. The predestination of God makes a distinction where none existed in respect of merit. If you ask the reason the apostle gives it, for he has said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And what, pray, does this mean? It is just a clear declaration by the Lord that he finds nothing in men themselves to induce him to show kindness, that it is owing entirely to his own mercy. And accordingly, that their salvation is his own work. Praise the Lord for that kind of clarity reflecting the teaching of Scripture. Um, I read Ephesians 1 at the beginning, and we see all these phrases. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. According to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, right? Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. I find it interesting over the years when someone says, do you believe in predestination? Do you believe in election? I think our response is, well, do you believe in the Bible? These are not man-made terms. These are in the Bible. We need to understand them as God has defined them for us biblically. And they're beautiful things that assault our pride and give glory to him, which I think is the whole point of the gospel. First Peter 1, right? According to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. We would not have sought him unless he had caused that to happen. Okay, lastly, one of my favorites, um, I think we're doing great on time, William Tyndale. And the tagline I give him is transformed by the word. He was a, he was a, a Brit, um, he was a scholar, a translator, and an author. Um, some key historical issues and events. Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury forbade the translation of the Bible into English. Right? And we saw that a little bit with Wycliffe. Um, in 1516, the Greek New Testament was published by Erasmus of Rotterdam. In 1519, the Lollards, we talked about them, the, the commissioned priests from Wycliffe, they were burned at the stake simply for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. Burned at the stake for that. I rejoice that even as I say that, there are children downstairs being taught the Word of God. Praise God for that. He, fl he fled to Germany in 1524, fled for his life, um, and he's known for his English translation of the Greek New Testament, which was smuggled into England in bales of cloth. 1536, uh, the Old Testament uh, translations from Hebrew to, uh, of the Pentateuch, Joshua through Second Chronicles and Jonah. So he didn't get through the whole Old Testament from Hebrew, but he got through much of it. And then in 1537, the Matthew Bible was printed after his death 
by John, by John Rogers, uh, also known as Thomas Matthew, uh, completing the translation work which was done, started by Tyndale. That's a picture of a, a, a leaf that I have in my office of a 1539 Matthew Tyndale Bible. I love this. It's Psalm 27, which is my favorite psalm. Um, and it's familiar to you, right? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the strength. I'll just read it in the King James, which is the closest that we have. Um, if I had read the, the Tyndale Bible, that's, I think, Middle English, you wouldn't be able to understand it. It's a little different than modern English, but King James is based on it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should arise against me, in this I will be confident. Think about how precious that scripture was to William Tyndale, who gave his life so that we could read this. Interesting. My, uh, I first got this, and I hung it up in my office. My son, Lee, um, I was telling, telling him a little bit about Tyndale, that he was the first to, first to translate the Bible from the original languages into English. He said, oh, did he get a lot of money doing that? I said, no, son, he got killed for doing that, right? And it was worth it. And so uh, we should be eternally grateful for men like that. Um, at age 42, in 1536, he was strangled and burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church, who hated people to have the word of God in their own language. Amazing. Amazing. Um, I, I, I kind of skipped over this, but he, but he never married. Um, he was single and committed himself fully uh, to the work of translating the scriptures. And we are all beneficiaries of it. So, the Bible in English and martyrdom were his key contributions I love this quote from Tyndale. I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God should spare my life for many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. Said that to a Roman Catholic scholar. That's bold, right? That's a kind of boldness that we don't see very often. He understood the power of the word of God in an ordinary person's heart and life. Made it accessible. And we're all the beneficiaries of that. Praise the Lord for that. A couple more quotes. Your cause is Christ's gospel, a light that must be fed with the blood of faith. This is a letter of his to a, to a friend who is also, would be martyred. If when we are buffeted for well-doing, we suffer patiently and endure, that is thankful to God, for to that end we are called. For Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. He did no sin. Hereby have we perceived love that he laid down his life for us, and therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Let not your body faint. If the pain be above your strength, remember whatever ye shall ask in my name, I will give to you and pray to your Father in heaven that he will ease your pain or shorten it. Amen. While, it's, while we view what they've done as remarkable, I don't know if they actually viewed what they did as remarkable. I think they simply viewed it as being faithful. They saw, a glory, they saw Christ in his glory and they said, this is what I do as a follower of Christ. Lord, open 
the king of England's eyes, Tyndale said, as he was being executed. That really reminds you of Christ, doesn't it? When he was dying. You see echoes of the character of Christ in these figures. So, key scriptures here, the word of God is profitable, right? All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Understood from 1 Peter 1 that we are born again through the living and abiding word of God. Or as the Gospels would say in the parable of the sower, very simply, the seed is the word of God. Let's never forget that. Okay, a few honorable mentions and a few concluding remarks. So, uh, other figures, there's many others, but I just want to point these out to you. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, he was a champion of believers' baptism. John Knox, the famous quote, give me Scotland or I die. Fascinating character. Argula von Grumbach was Protestantism's first female theologian. Probably, I would say, the first published female theologian. Every mom who taught their kids the scriptures was a theologian. Let's be honest about that. Uh, Katarina von Bora, that's Martin Luther's wife. She was the nun who became his wife. And then I have an anti-hero here, Ignatius of Loyola. Um, he was a leader of the Counter-Reformation. We see him as an anti-hero, and he was the founder of the Order of the Jesuits who I would say have been wreaking havoc ever since, if we can be honest. Fruit of the Reformation. Well, there's a lot that I could say here. Um, let me just give a few, a few comments. Um, defining and clarifying beliefs, uh, primarily about salvation, authority, the church, and Christian living. Let me give you a few quotes from, from uh, Luther on this, which I think are, are really helpful. Um, this was a little bit of a short catechism that Luther did. Question and answer, how is a person saved, not by works, but by faith in Christ alone? Where does religious authority lie? Not in the visible institution called the Roman church, but in the word of God found in the Bible. What is the church? The whole community of Christian believers since all are priests before God. What is the essence of Christian living? Serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained or lay. And so, to this day, those who believe such things, particularly in salvation by faith through grace alone, are anathematized by the Roman Catholic Church. Anathematized means damned to hell. So, you and I, and, and, and not all of our Catholic friends know this or believe this. Let's be honest. I'm talking about the official teaching of, of the Roman Catholic Church. Most of my, most of my non-believing friends are Roman Catholic um, and don't know a lot of this. Um, but the official Catholic do uh, doctrine is that we, you and I are cursed to hell for believing in salvation by grace through faith. And that's both by the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches, um, uh, Greek and Russian Orthodox churches. So that's, uh, that's the fruit in the church. In the world, we have, um, we have literacy, work ethic, separation of church and state, and abolition of slavery. Let me just go through these really quickly. Literacy. Uh, illiteracy and ignorance, as I've mentioned before, these are tools of, of totalitarianism. Through the printing press and Bible translation into the vernacular, meaning the common language, the common people now have the opportunity to read for themselves and not rely on other people, dead or alive. 
In particular, Luther's German translation and Tyndale's English translation had impacts that are felt to this day. If you are literate, thank the reformers. Right? It just wasn't happening. In fact, in a lot of these churches, this is why they had the images and the pictures. Because, they, well, they don't need to read. They, we can just show them these pictures. Intentionally keeping people ignorant. Right? So literacy is a huge deal. Work ethic. The Protestant work ethic, you may have heard that phrase, came out of the recognition that Christianity was to be lived out in the world and that all legitimate vocations were expressions of worship to God. There weren't two classes of Christians, professional Christians and amateur Christians. No, we all have a place to serve Him. In that sense, all Christians were professionals. The impacts on education and in medicine in particular followed Christianity throughout the world. You see the history of Christianity, you see the history of education and progress. You do. You do. Separation of church and state, we mentioned that several times. Initially through the influences of Wycliffe and Calvin, both of whom distinguished church and state as both God-given but separate earthly authorities, this eventually led to the dismantling of the, quote, Holy Roman Empire, conversion by choice and not by force, and freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. And then finally, we have abolition of slavery. Biblical Christianity laid the foundation for the abolition of slavery for the first time in human history. Contrary to what is often asserted today, namely that white Christianity essentially created chattel slavery, Christians reading their Bibles concluded that chattel slavery was sin and worked to actively work to end it both in religious and civil institutions. Slavery ended because Christians were reading their Bibles and following Christ. Let's never forget that. Praise the Lord. A lot more I can say about that. Some people claim that the Bible justifies it. It does not. Absolutely does not. At least not in, yeah. So that's a whole other lesson. Um, so what are some applications for us? Um, I'll suggest a few. One is literacy uh, and learning. And some of you may know about the Bereans that Paul talks about in the book of Acts, right? These were more noble because they listened to what Paul said and they examined the scriptures daily to see if what these things, that, that these things were true, right? When, with literacy comes the responsibility to examine everything by the word of God. And what's so interesting, um, as I talk to some of my more hardcore um, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends, they will say to me that you, you cannot question the words of a priest or question. Well, and I say, well, what about Paul? He has more words than anyone alive today, and he invited being questioned to being examined by the Word of God, and we ought to do that, and we're responsible to do that, right? Even anything I've said today, I've probably got some things wrong. Look at the Scriptures, right? Glory, right? We want to have the right center to our lives. Um, Copernicus back in the 1400s and the 1500s, observed that the planetary system revolved not around the earth, but around the sun. That was revolutionary at the time. In the same way, God's people were recognizing that salvation and the church centered around God and not man. This is a lesson we must continually return to. Amen? And then control, right? Who is the right master? Who are we living to please? Right? Um, you may have heard of a, a concept um, in Western civilization called the divine right of kings, which is really a misinterpretation of Romans 13, which takes the idea that 
because God has established authority, then authorities can do no wrong. It's not quite it, right? And so uh, kings would abuse this by saying it's right just because I say so. The only person who can do that is God, right? So with that dismantled through the Reformation, we experience freedom from totalitarianism and recognize that we must obey God rather than men. And we need to apply that every day, don't we, brothers and sisters? This comes up every day. Okay. Give you the final quote, and then we will, we will pray. Colossians 2.67. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. The reason I mention this is that the gospel has application to our lives every single day, really every moment. How do we come to faith in Christ? How do we come to Christ? By repentance and faith. How do we live in Christ? Continual cycle of repentance and faith. Not that we're re, not that we're becoming born again, 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 right? But as we've received, so we walk in repentance and faith. Robert Godfrey put it this way, and I'll end with this quote. I think it's really helpful. Since we now have a church reformed in the externals of doctrine, worship, and government, let us always be working to ensure that our hearts and lives are being reformed by the Word and the Spirit of God. With that, let me pray for us. Father, I pray above all that our hearts would be captivated by Christ that you would be the center of our thoughts and of our affections, that we just can't keep our eyes off of you, learning about you, as it says in Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfection, perfecter of our faith, beholding with unveiled face the glory of the Lord, right? being transformed in his image. May this be our lives, that we would explore new depths of repentance and faith in our own lives. And that we would grow in discernment and measure all things by Christ, ourselves in your image, the church in its fullness, the world by your kingdom, your reign and rule over all things. In Jesus' name, amen.